0: Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Digital Dissection podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark, two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you. Write us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting. All right. Well, welcome back fellow nerds to digital dissection. Today, we have the privilege of connecting with one of my favorite creators. He's a writer, executive producer, and one of the funniest people you'll find on Twitter. Along with his writing partner, Benji Summit, they have taken TV and film by storm with projects like The Tick, Detective Pikachu, and The Adams Family Too, We welcome Dan Hernandez. Dan, how are we doing?
1: Good. Good. Really good. How are you doing?
0: Awesome. I'm doing really well, especially since I get to connect with someone who I feel like I've chatted with on Twitter for like the last year and a half exclusively. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
1: I, I, I appreciate that. I I like the diehard fans and, uh, I'm glad we finally had a chance to sit down and do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And I think actually how I initially found you was because I'm a big fan of Jose Molina, who, uh, was a writer for Firefly and, and quite a few other things. And when I first joined Twitter, I followed Jose and then it said you might also like Dan Hernandez and so i clicked on your profile and i go this 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 guy is is one of my people i have to follow dan <laughs> and so yeah dude ever since then it's been it's been great to kind of follow along with you see what you're up to and and really just happy to see how awesome stuff has gone over the last you know year and a half for you
1: things have been really good jose and i have kind of been on alternate tracks we are supposed to get together in person someday but we seem to like all the same things. He was on season one of The Tick. I was on season two. You know, it's like one of those people that I really admire that I can't wait to actually like sit down with in person and get to know. But yes, I'm glad that the Twitter algorithm served me up as a as a potential follow. Uh, but yeah, things have been going really well, and I'm, I'm really. It's a really nice moment for you know Team Hernandez
0: <laughs> coming off your first San Diego Comic Con panel. How was that experience for you?
1: It, it was fantastic. It was it was a long day. There was a lot of stuff that went along with doing the panel, a lot of press, a lot of promotion for Koala Man, uh, that is a new show that I'm show running and I helped develop with the creator Michael Cusack, and along with Benji. And it was very cool to finally show other human beings what we have been up to. I know it was only you know a little trailer but it was still really great to hear the response and to hear people laughing And but along with that was you know okay you got to go on the IMDB IMD boat to do <laughs> interviews so there I am on a boat at 9 in the morning uh, it was just a very different way to experience San Diego Comic Con I had gone as a fan many times and I had always mm-hmm. hoped to someday have a panel of my own it was on my bucket list uh, you know accomplishment list, but uh, it kind of snuck up on me and that it was real. And then all of a sudden you're being chauffeured around and you are talking to, you know, IGN and all these different places, all these different interviews that, that it was just a completely night and day way of experiencing something like Comic-Con.
0: Yeah. I imagine. I, I think I actually had a chance to watch at least two or three of your videos uh, since like when you went and you kind of looked like me near the end, where it's like, I love people, but I'm kind of like a cat that tells you when it's done being pet. Okay, like I, I think I need to go back and rest for a little bit. And <laughs> long days for sure.
1: Well, that was that, I, I'm very similar in that regard. I, I have a finite reserve of social energy, and by the end of especially that day where we did the panel, I, I, I needed to recharge. But the other part of it is when you go as part of a bigger production suddenly it's, well, you know, there's a party tonight. Well, you really ought to go and, and have dinner with so-and-so or this other person that, you know, and have wanted to meet is, you know, they're available for one hour at 1am and you say, Oh, okay, I guess I got to rally and, and go and find some bar somewhere somewhere. And of course COVID added a whole other dimension to it, which I have to say, I was very impressed with the organizers of uh Comic Con, because I actually felt very safe on the floor. I would say that 99% of people were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. And it was a really, as far as safety goes, I think they did about as great a job as they possibly could have done. And we were fortunate that no one on the Koala Man team ended up getting COVID. I'm sure people did get COVID because just from the sheer numbers. But I was pretty impressed by their organization and the safety precautions that they took and the, and the reminders to, to wear your mask properly. And, and it was a good time on the floor. I really enjoyed walking the floor by myself. It's one of my favorite things to do is taking my time, going from the beginning to the end, yeah. doing what I call the weave. And I really enjoyed that. It was nice.
0: I <laughs> see it now. I am a Midwesterner from birth. Okay. My, I was born in Wisconsin, but my mom is a Filipino immigrant and after they moved here, the whole weaving idea is something that every Midwesterner knows because of antique stores. And so I have spent almost like my, the early part of my life just doing that weave motion. So hopefully one day I can utilize it at a comic con like San Diego in that type of size. You will be
1: well prepared (laughs) to utilize it uh, to the fullest of, of your ability. It's, it's a valuable skill. It allows you to find some weird stuff that maybe you would have overlooked otherwise. And my friends all think I'm being overly intense and find me tedious, but I just have to do it that way for my own brains functioning. And I yeah. really find it very relaxing in a weird way. Just yeah. to go and you go up, and you go down and you window gaze and then you look at a statue you could never afford. <laughs> or a comic that you have always wanted, and I, I, what I learned is that my appetite for actually buying anything expensive isn't as great as I thought that it was. I kind of thought maybe this is the year I buy myself something really special, like a, a you know a, a giant size X Men number one or something, and you know like a <laughs> like a cheaper version, not like the multi thousand dollar version, you know, but one. You know, oh yeah. I'm s- spend a thousand dollars, and like the second that I got there, I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna buy the same cheap, silly stuff that I always buy. I think I, so anyway, it was, it was a fun, it was fun. It was a really good time.
0: Is that such a weird feeling too, because as a, as a nerd slash geek, I'm the same way when I, there's something I've wanted for a really long time, finally get in front of it and I'm holding it in my hand and then I just go, I don't need this as much as I thought I did. You know, like, that that whole idea that it was so uh, hard to get at one point in time and now it's here. You know, it's almost taking away the, I don't know, the, the search, that grail mentality, you know? I, I
1: felt that uh, way a little bit. It felt a little bit like a cheat code.
0: Yeah, where right?
1: in the old days of my heavy comic collecting, you could go to your local mall and they would have a comic book sort of collectible convention like once a month and you might find some Amazing treasure, or you would go to some random store, and I, I feel like those days are less common now than they used to be. Every now and then, you hear of some amazing, you know. My I went to a garage sale and I found X Men, you know, X Men number one or or something equivalent, and I, I that's my super daydream. But at Comic Con, <laughs> it was like, oh, here's a hundred versions of this issue and each of them at a slightly different price point and it just it was like i didn't i didn't find it in the wild so i felt like it wasn't as like a true kill
0: that's right in the wild it reminds me of of pokemon and turning my hat backwards you know getting ready to go mm-hmm. uh, like for me I, I don't even know what collectibles i'd truly be after these days i've in my adult life i spend so much time getting all the stuff that i really did want when i was a kid and now it's not even that big of a deal anymore unless it was like stanley's hand or something you know mm-hmm. that's that's the only thing I think I'd really get excited for, but kind of shifting gears for a moment, you, you kind of went down this lane a little bit. What we love to do with folks that we run to our show is talk a little bit about the version of yourself before you really got started and what you were doing you know now. And the internet has uh, very little information on Dan Hernandez before Good. you know <laughs> s- some, some of these things.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, probably because it was too boring.
0: <laughs> hey, you are literally from Venice of the United States, okay? Or the Venice of America. The Venice of America. Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this town's actually built on stilts or not, but I'll tell you why I even know why, where you're from, and it's because a company I used to work for focused on this use case from a subway in Broward County, and I don't know why Broward got picked or why that subway was so important. I just remember Broward, and then I looked around the area. So- you mean
1: Subway the restaurant?
0: Yes. Yeah, yes.
1: I was gonna say because I, I, subway in Fort Lauderdale would have been a very, very a, sub, a literal subway in Fort Lauderdale would have been a bad, a bad business plan. <laughs> in an underwater subway. Um, but oh, yeah, no. yes, I am. I am. I am from the Venice of America. Well, really, I'm from Coral Springs, Florida, which is uh, a little bit north of Fort Lauderdale. But I say Fort Lauderdale because I went to high school near Fort Lauderdale, and I my wife is from Fort Lauderdale. So it's kind of like if you zoom in a little bit farther, it's actually really Carl Springs slash Margate. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, the Venice of America, it is not built on stilts, but it is on the intercoastal. So there are a lot of little canals and channels and intercoastal kind of uh, boat docking stations and things like that. So it was, a, it's a very strange place to be from i only realized in retrospect at the time fort lauderdale florida didn't seem like a very strange place to be from but Mm -hmm. as i've gone out into the world people are often confused that anyone could grow up there it's such a strange usually you hear oh my grandmother lives in boca or you hear oh uh, i took a cruise out of fort lauderdale once on you know for spring break or things like that but uh it's a, it's a weird combination of of traits I would say.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why you have an affinity for striped shirts and berets, I assume, right? That's that's where that love came from with Oh that, yeah, that yeah, my room.
1: gondola uh obsession. <laughs> no. I, I It's a I don't yeah, I don't know like by the Venice of America, do they mean it has good food? No, it couldn't mean that. Do they have gondola rides? No, they don't really have that. They mean they have water, I guess, but really anywhere could be the Venice of America under those parameters. I guess, I don't know, it's, it's a little highfalutin for <laughs> the experience that you actually get at Fort Lauderdale, I would say.
0: Yeah, maybe it was attacked by Vikings and we just don't quite know that history. I well, mean, that would be knows. cool,
1: but I, I think no. I think it was attacked by people with Zubaz shorts and <laughs> you know Miami Hurricanes s- sweatshirts.
0: Hey, why not you know um uh, so my my uncle lives in Tampa, I've been to Florida several times, and uh I gotta say the one that'll probably keep me from going back is just humidity, but on top of that, I sold generators for about three or four years, and so just having hurricane season like ingrained into my mind it, it's always there, and I always know about hurricane season, and I don't live anywhere near Florida, so yeah, it's just one of those things that like I've always kind of kept in there. Um, but I guess what I'm interested in, Dan, a little bit more, is kind of where your nerd journey began. You know, like because obviously I've seen quite a few photos of you online. There's quite a bit of either fun graphic T-shirts or collectibles that you post. You know, where did that really get going for you?
1: I think that I always, from a young age, had an affinity for things like that. I remember growing up with the Kenner Star Wars toys uh, when I was young. And my dad is pretty good about keeping things. And so I inherited a lot of my brother's toys. He's older than I am. And I always was sort of interested in those, those arenas always attracted me the most comic books. I started reading at an extremely young age and it just, Never stopped. Uh, as far as my desire to to immerse myself in in various pieces of knowledge, you know, I remember collecting the Marvel cards that when they first came out in the early nineties, and and really studying them and studying uh, what is the the things you know power level relative to his dexterity and his. <laughs> And his, you know, intelligence and things like that. And I still remember a lot of them just because I studied them so extensively. And so because my dad was also, and my mom, she is a visual artist, which I also think is a big component. And so they kept a lot of their old comics from the 60s. And so I Mm -hmm. actually had access to some really interesting material from a pretty young age, you know, Tales to Astonish, Tales of Suspense, uh, some early Kirby, uh, Stan Lee stuff. Even some underground comics like R. Crumb, which I think was probably too advanced for when I was exposed to it, but it 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 just awakened this whole real. You know, the, uh, it was a whole world to explore, at least in the comic book side of things. And then, in combination with growing up in the '80s, suddenly you have not just Star Wars, but all of a sudden it's He-Man, it's Thundercats, it's an explosion of what I now recognize as, I don't want to say cynically created products, but let's say strategically created products oh, to, yeah. to uh, appeal to kids, especially like boys who were exactly my age and it worked. And so combine that with the first time I got the NES, the, you know, the, oh, the yeah. original Nintendo. And so now it was, that's a whole other arena, which is Mario and and you know, Zelda and Punch-Out and all of that kind of stuff. And so I felt like for, you know, an aspiring nerd, the 80s were a very good – it was a very good time to grow up because there was a lot of content, but it was also before the internet. So it did feel like you – if you met other people who were interested in those things, it, it felt like a real connection. And I think you yeah. see that a, a little bit in stranger things when they kind of explore some of those things with dungeons and dragons. I came later to dungeons and dragons, but yeah, but for me, that's where it started. And so then from there it was going to these uh, collectible shows every month with my dad at, at local places. And my mom was also great about it. And so it, I'm you know i often I often say like my wife is not a collector, in fact, she's the opposite <laughs> of a collector. she hates any sort of she does not like clutter, which is a problem yes. because I love clutter and I love <laughs> ephemera and bric a brac and things like that. so you kind of have to either have that gear inside of you or you don't, and I definitely do have that collecting instinct I like to collect things, I like to organize not my life, but I like to organize like marble cards or magic, the gathering cards. <laughs> um, so I like to put my graphic novels in alphabetical order and I don't put anything in alphabetical. I don't, I'm just not <laughs> a very organized person, but for some reason in this particular arena, yeah. it, it appeals to me. I find it very relaxing. I find it very satisfying to have things you know, kind of in their right place. Uh, and so then it became about, learning the process of negotiation and learning what were high value pieces and what were not high value pieces or identifying things that I really wanted. My best purchase ever was I bought, my dad took us to the Cayman Islands once for a family trip and he won, I think like $1,500 at craps almost immediately. And as a young <laughs> kid, I was like seven or eight and he gave me a $100 bill, which was the most money that I had ever had in my entire life. And for what, exactly $100 at the local comic book shop, there was a copy of Hulk 181, which is the first appearance of Wolverine, and I bought it, and I still have it to this day, and it's appreciated. Like I don't have it graded <laughs> or anything because I, I get nervous about sending my comics away, but I do have this Hulk 181 that I bought with my dad's like craps winnings from the Cayman Islands, and it was it's proved to be the best purchase I've ever made. So <laughs> it's very exciting when you find something like I said, in the wild kind of that you, cause that yeah. was at a small store in Springs, Florida uh, that I just don't know if that exists in the same way anymore. It's it, it, sometimes occasionally, but it was an exciting time to grow up. And I, I, I think it was the genesis of so many of my interests. And, and now, you know, of course I, have a practical application for some of this knowledge that I have in the in the things that I write. So I was fortunate that I kind of was schooled in it from a year early age and now it's paid dividends because when people are like, well, who really knows you know, Ninja Turtles? It's like, well, me. <laughs> and so I've had I've been fortunate <laughs> to have opportunities uh along all different kinds of projects and things like that that I think really was you know, the, the genesis of it happened growing up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Well, what, what you just kind of mentioned there, and we've talked about it a little bit here is that we we're we're so inundated with information now about properties and the latest thing coming out that you almost don't even have a chance to build up that, that hype or just the, the interest in some of these things, because I, I feel like I know what I'm walking into, as opposed to what I was as a kid, like you mentioned, you're experiencing stuff for the first time, and you have no baseline like you don't even know what it's going to be yet and so as i've gotten older i've i've found myself actually reading less information about stuff coming out not building up uh any kind of standards or i shouldn't say standard but expectations not building any expectations these days and and more just you know experiencing a trailer and actually looking at the trailer and going do i want to see that you know um it's it's different than i would say even like my 20s, because I feel like I consume so much media that it it would almost ruin stuff for me. And I don't know if, if you feel the same way about that being, you know, so close to creation.
1: It's, you know, it's, it's, you go back and forth, which is you, from a practical standpoint, I want my work to be promoted. And I hope that people You're actively trying to build hype and to get people on board with what you're trying to do. That was why we went to Comic-Con. That's why we made the announcement that Hugh Jackman and Sarah Snook are in the show at Comic-Con to try to Mm -hmm. get that kind of groundswell of interest or clue people in who might be inclined to like this kind of thing that there's a really cool thing that's about to come. We're about to do the same thing in New York Comic-Con in about a month. Uh, we're going to be playing the first episode of Koala Man for the first time, which is going to be great. Oh, cool. But Very cool. But at the same time, it is hard when you're so inundated with media and content. And usually there's a moment at Comic-Con where I kind of disassociate for a minute and I step back or I send my astral form above my body and I <laughs> look down and I'm like, oh, this is just a, this is just people, wanting me to buy things, you know, it's, it's, it's it's a very capitalist venture. It's trading on nostalgia and and good sentiment and that feeling of wanting to capture some sort of excitement of youth or, or community. And and sometimes I feel a little cynical about that, but then what helps me in those moments is then I snap back to, well, you know, the artists that who, who have created these things did so, 99% of the time with the best of intentions and, and like true artistic desire. So it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. If something like the boys becomes hugely successful, I'm really close friends with Derek Robertson, the co-creator of the Boys, And he's an artist. He's a true artist. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. And he deserves that show to be successful. And I'm glad that it's a huge, massive smash hit, but I don't think that he or anyone could have anticipated that when they Mm -hmm. were making that art originally. And I think that that's one of the things that helps me sort of step back from the consumerism of, you you know, that fatigue of consumerism, Uh, you know, and as far as trailers and things, I've become extremely, I don't want to say bitter, but I watched the Lord of the Rings show last night and I just couldn't help but think, all of the hand-wringing and all of the bad faith argumentation about, like, why there shouldn't be people of color in Middle Earth. And you watch the show, and it's great. It's fantastic. And if that's yeah. what you're, like, worried about, and if that's what you are going to spend all day fighting about online, then it's, it's just pathetic. It's a joke. So yeah. I also, at a certain point, have to sort of step back from certain kind of conversations There's certain kind of narratives and just say, I can't invite this into my life because there's so many opinions. And so often they're bad faith arguments from people that, that it almost seems like are rooting for things to fail in a lot of cases. And I I think that that's not, that's not why I became a fan. It's not why I became a creator and and I, I don't enjoy those sorts of narratives. I'm not saying that everything should be immune from criticism. I'm not saying that my stuff should be immune yeah. from criticism, but <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it just sometimes it's exhausting to see a narrative about yeah. something before it's even come out. You know, like for me, I've been on the bandwagon of supporting Avatar for years, oh, yeah, for yeah. years, and people have given me such a hard time. And then the second that those that first trailer came out, and everyone was like, oh, yeah. actually, it looks amazing, and I was like, yeah. I've been telling you because I think that you like, I think it's more fun to want things to be awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I think
1: it's right. Like it's more fun. It's like a much more fun world that we live in. If the avatar sequels are all just great and they make a billion dollars and everyone has a good time and we see things that we've never seen before. And so that's always kind of where I'm coming from. I really try to give things the benefit of the doubt. And then it's not, and every now and then you see something and you go, you know what? This was a, a success for me, but I've tried as much as possible to end any sort of criticism of other people's work on like Twitter, for instance. It's just not – life is too short. And it's – especially when you are a professional and you like run into these people. um, A lot of times there's younger writers who will say this or that bad thing about movies or TV. And I'm not saying that you can't have those opinions. I'm just saying don't put them on Twitter. It's it's like a bad look. And, you know, maybe some people wouldn't care. But for me, I I find it like uh, that's a I think it's a faux pas.
0: (laughs) Well, this is something we've always thought on this show is that if we are going to provide a criticism for something, we need to at least be able to explain what that is versus just insulting something. You know, if you can if you can explain what your criticism is and then maybe offer another viewpoint on it. Like, here's here's what I would have tried. I think that is. That's that's actual useful criticism versus it's just shitting on someone's work, you know. And and I, I will I will never shit on someone's creative vision. I will, but I will offer what I think you could have tried. You know, it's it's never about putting that person down. Or at least it shouldn't be. So I really agree with you there.
1: I think that's right. And you know, obviously, we've all had things that, or at least people in my profession have had things that get away from you a little bit, or don't get as good a reception as you hoped, or maybe were better on the page than it was as executed. And so you, you try to be a little bit more understanding and gracious of, of that kind of stuff. But mm. the internet is exhausting. It is. And, yeah. and oh, it's yeah. especially exhausting for people who do what I do because you kind of need it and you kind of, you know, <laughs> it's a Double tool. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. You just, you know, it's like, I want Koala Man to trend when it comes out. I want it to be successful. I want it to to make an impact culturally. I want there to be Koala Man memes, uh, <laughs> but I also recognize that things can spiral into a bad place pretty quickly, depending on the whims of a, you know whatever is happening that day. And so, you also don't want to be like the main character of Twitter, as they often say. I, I really have tried to avoid that, and have thus far been successful. But you know, maybe my turn on the on the hot seat will come someday.
0: I, I think you wield Twitter with a, a pretty good level of responsibility and intent. So I wouldn't feel too bad about that, but <laughs> to, to shift gears for a moment though, uh, back to kind of what you mentioned about stranger things in D and D it's one of our first questions that the fans have asked for you today. Uh, so user tabletop dollar sign has asked, you've posted several D games throughout the years. Do you mm-hmm. have ongoing campaigns or one shots?
1: So I, have had ongoing campaigns with a couple of different groups. Um, my great friend Jefferson really sparked my sort of later in life, uh, entry into D and D. It wasn't that I wasn't interested in D and D. In fact, I had D and D books growing up. I just didn't have anyone to play with.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I, w-
1: I would read the books and imagine what it would be like to play with other people. <laughs>
0: yes.
1: Um, which is a little sad, but, but so I, you know, and I, whenever possible, I would play, um, games based on D and D mechanics. And I loved yeah. those role-playing games growing up and, and not just D and D, but also things like shining force, final fantasy, uh, yes. Anything that was party based with different classes and, you know, firmly drawn from, I, I think, you know, influenced by D and D and Lord of the Rings and things like that. But, I've always been attracted to those sorts of things. And so my campaigns have been generally longer term campaigns, uh, in different play worlds. I mostly have played D and D I've dabbled a little bit in call of Cthulhu, although it's a totally different experience it's really more about, you know, survival and, and Oh, not everyone died this time. So what a success, (laughs) um, so, yes, my D&D campaigns are longer term. Uh, I started DMing maybe six years ago, six, seven years ago, around the time I was on One Day at a Time, whenever that was, 2016, I guess. twenty. Yeah. And I decided to start DMing because it, it's fun to play, and I do love playing, but I felt... Like I would be good at DMing and I was excited to to kind of run the campaign and put my own spin on it. So I started with Out of the Abyss, that module, which is all about the Underdark and and uh, Drow and all kinds of demons coming to the Underdark. And it, it was great, it was, but it was also a very complex campaign to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, I recently got recruited into a longer term game with people who had been playing for a while. But, as fate would have it, uh, my friend Joe, who runs the game who was the dm of that game, had been a player in my game, and he got recruited to be the dm of this other game and he and he invited me to come along sort of as a friendly face and as Joe has gotten busier and busier because he 's He runs that show Ghosts, which is a massive, cool, awesome hit. It turns out if you have a massive hit network show, you don't have as much time to to DM. (laughs) And so when he is too busy being a mogul, I have now stepped in sort of as the secondary DM for this group, uh, which is a ton of fun. And it's a nice – in some ways, being the secondary DM is actually better than being the main DM. Because I can design sort of one shot, not one shot, but more like this will be a two to three session scenario as opposed to infinite ongoing campaign. So I've been fortunate enough to be able to experiment a little bit with my campaigns. I just did one that was heavy metal based um, about, I'm really pleased with it. I think it's one of the best that I've ever run. The premise was that Uh, the adventurers kind of get sucked up into a domain of dread by this vampire Lord that they had dealt with in the past called diamond Dave, which is David Lee Roth's sort of, you know, nickname. And so he's basically was David Lee Roth as a vampire Lord. And he was having a feud with Sagar, the red rocker who was based on Sammy Hagar. (laughs) So it was basically a Van Halen feud as expressed through D and D with like a little bit of curse of Strahd dropped in there and, some other stuff. And so it sort of expanded into like a full heavy metal campaign where suddenly Ozzy was showing up as a ghost and <laughs> Dio as a character called the last in line. And the, all these like metal guys kept pop space ACE freely. And, but all within the context of this, this, uh, heavy metal campaign. And yeah. it's one of the most fun campaigns I've ever run. It, we did it for about three or four sessions and everyone had a blast and I think that that's going to kind of be my model going forward, at least for this group, which is, <laughs> okay, What where is my head at about I, – I like to pick kind of esoteric things. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know exactly what the next one is going to be, but I like to base it around sort of characters and situations that we might be familiar with but then recontextualize them into the D&D setting. And so that, that one really worked and everyone had a really good time. So. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with D and D. I have been fortunate enough to play a few one-offs. Like I did one with Jen Kretschmer, who's like a huge D and D, you know, celebrity personality. She's amazing. She DM'd a one shot for some friends of ours. Uh, that was awesome. So I I really love it. I think that if I didn't have the job that I have, I maybe could have been a D and D personality (laughs) (laughs) or maybe like worked for wizards of the coast. I really, really enjoy it. Um, it would be a dream to like write a scenario someday, like an official scenario. I would absolutely love that. But um, that—that's sort of my D and D experience.
0: Yeah, we'll tag wizards when we post this episode. Please by the way, do because- tell them I'm ready. <laughs> tell them I'm.
1: Tell them I'm. I'm available. Well, I'm not. Well, I'm pretty busy, but I will make myself available <laughs> if they let me write a. It doesn't have to be a whole book. Let me write one part of it. Yeah. There Get me in the game, Wizards of the Coast, please. I've <laughs> given you so much money over the years. I've dedicated my whole life to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, say what, really quick, we, we don't like to spend too long on education because for some people that can be a fun area to explore. Sometimes it's painful. I, I'm one of those people. But you, obviously you studied at Brown University, and we had a, a specific fan question come in from sure. user An- Anana Mouse. so like anonymous but mouse. <laughs>
1: I'm uh,
0: <laughs> What was your plan initially heading into Brown? Was your writing interest already there? Yes.
1: Um, my writing interest had been with me for a very long time. I found not too many years ago, a Star Trek, the next generation, like fan fiction. I started writing in third grade during like na- fourth grade, actually during nap time. Um, So I think that i had always had that part of myself. I was also very fortunate to be recognized by teachers in high school and in middle school pretty early as, as having some ability, you know, and having some facility for, for writing. And I won an award in ninth grade, which was like the best writer in ninth grade award. And so, From a pretty early age, I was like, oh, I think maybe this is the thing that I'm the best at. When I got to Brown, the other thing that I was interested in doing was acting. And I acted extensively in high school, acted extensively in college, and then just after college. And so those were the main things that I was interested in. Um, I actually didn't think I would be able to stack up to the other actors at Brown. But once I started to be in the community, I I realized that, you know, I, I could hang with those people. And so Mm -hmm. that became a really great place and a great space for me to explore sort of the more extroverted performative part of myself. Uh, That's where I met Benji as well, sort of doing theater stuff. And so my, but my actual goal going basically from the time that I arrived at college through the end was to write weird fiction uh, Mm -hmm. in the vein of H. P. Lovecraft, uh, Stephen King, Uh, things of that nature and and in fact my degree is in fiction and it's possible that I'm better at writing fiction than I am at writing screenplays but (laughs) Benji convinced me to sell out pretty easily so (laughs) I I think he he being from Los Angeles he was able to say hey I'm going back to Los Angeles after college and I'm going to pursue this track and being from South Florida I had no idea about oh like how do you even become a screenwriter how do you become a TV writer because Benji had a more practical sense of how to do those things, being from Los Angeles and having family members who, who had experienced that it gave us a framework to work with. But, but actually I thought I would be writing novels and short stories at this point in time. Um, And that's still something that I, when I get the opportunity to, I jump at, it just doesn't, I don't have a ton of time to dedicate to it. I've been fortunate enough to participate in a couple of, anthologies from crazy eight press uh which is just a great collective of writers that put together an awesome publishing company and i was brought in by michael jan friedman who is was such an influence on me growing up he wrote a bunch of amazing star trek books and comics and i just read his work over and over and over and through twitter we became friends and and then we became real friends and started hanging out and he invited me to participate in one of his uh shared world, uh, anthologies called Pangea. And then we just started another one called Phenomenons, which is sort of a superhero shared world. So it's not, you know, it's, it's for me, it's really about fun and flexing that muscle, but also a lot of the people in those anthologies are people that I grew up reading who are extremely major, you know, award winning fiction writers. And so to be even, in the same collection as those people, it really is very personally meaningful to me. The great regret of my life, and I just don't know how to fix it, is in 2012, Weird Tales magazine, which of course has a very tricky legacy, but essentially, if you're being charitable, it's the same magazine that published the original Lovecraft stories, Robert Mm -hmm. Howard, Stephen King, Robert Block, anyone who writes this kind of fiction. They had an open... Submission and Mm. my story was accepted to be in Weird Tales magazine. It was like, I just wanted it so much. And then that iteration of the magazine went out of business Mm. before it could be published. And so I am the only one that knows that it was going to be in the magazine, (laughs) but it never was. And so that, that's sort of the great unresolved uh, sadness of sort of my fiction career, because it, it really felt like to say that I could, my, short story writing could be in the same legacy as, as those people that I admired so, 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 so so much would have been pretty cool, but I know it was accepted. It just didn't, it just didn't work. But, but that's more what I thought that I would be doing. That's most of what my Brown experience was, was split pretty evenly between fiction writing, a little bit of playwriting and acting. And for some reason, I also thought that I could learn Japanese on the side, and that proved not to be the case. I was probably the worst student of Japanese in the history of Brown University. I just had no aptitude for it whatsoever. Even I I love it and I love um, East Asian studies and, and things of, of like the history and all of that stuff. But absolutely no, just the worst, truly the worst. And so... Right. If I had done one more year of Japanese, I would have actually qualified for a secondary degree in East Asian studies. Oh, really? But I, nice. I could not. I could not, in good conscience, inflict myself on the on the <laughs> like the very learned and kind Japanese language teachers anymore. Uh, yeah. So I had to recuse myself. So I was like <laughs> one class away from having that secondary degree. I, I don't.
0: I don't blame you because uh, being half Asian myself. I love the cooking and I figured out the cooking side of of my heritage. Absolutely could never figure out any of the language. Just I just can't do it. Never I, never been able to.
1: Same for me in Spanish. I'm I'm a little bit, you know, I I I have a little bit more aptitude for Spanish having grown up with it and having my grandmother, you know, is speaks mostly Spanish and so I, I I'm mm-hmm. I'm like passable, but I never was one of those people <laughs> who could just pick up languages. I was always so envious of people who are like, yeah, I added Romanian in my spare time. And I'm like, (laughs) how do you, (sighs) or people who are like, Oh, you like Chekhov? Well, it's garbage unless you read it in the original Russian. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess, (laughs) I guess it's garbage for me forever because I, it's never going to happen. So I I wish I had that ability. I just, just, my brain just wasn't, i just can't i
0: just never do well here's something i thought was really cool in in having observed your your catalog of work because i've i've had a chance to engage with most of it as it's coming out like i at first i didn't actually know that you were attached uh to one day at a time when i when i first saw the ads for it and everything on on, you know on netflix and as i've kind of watched things through the years and my kids have also you know watched your work as well which is really cool I've noticed that there is this, this family unit in in almost every property that you work on and you do a really good job of, of fleshing out these relationships, but also giving people something to watch. That's, I don't want to say non-threatening in a way, but I don't have to worry about my kids watching what you make right now. Like, I guess I'll put it that way. And I didn't know if that was by design.
1: Um, I think it is a little bit by design. I think that, Uh, I would not have them watch Koala Man. It is a little bit (laughs) harder core than things I've done in the past. Um, I don't think that I'm a particularly PG rated person, Mm -hmm. but I also like to write big things that are for everyone because I like to be part of that lineage of things that I liked growing up that were big things for everyone, like Star Wars, like Mm -hmm. Marvel, like you know, so on and so forth. So for me, it's nice to be able to, to exercise that ability um, for something like, let's say detective Pikachu, which is Mm -hmm. by design, a big tentpole movie of the most successful franchise in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. More than star Wars, more than Marvel, more than anything. Pokemon is like the number one, you know, by just by, massiveness and it was a really great challenge to try to bring that to people who both loved it and knew it really well and people like my mom who knew absolutely nothing about it but (laughs) you know also wanted to go and have a good time at the movies and so I actually really love writing things that are that's for everyone and I love writing family dynamics like the Adams Family I mean Mm -hmm. it's helpful when you have characters that you know really well and grew up sort of Intimately spending time with, like you know, you know, yeah. kind of what Fester is going to do, you know how Morticia is going to react to to a certain, you know, like the I'll tell everyone the secret of writing the Addis Family is it goes bad thing, bad thing, I love it. <laughs> That's the joke construction. It's like it's horrible, it's horrifying, it's menacing, it's blood curdling. Give me more. <laughs> that's the that is the adams family like magic ratio. And so knowing some of those things going in it was exciting to write a family dynamic in that way. One day at a time was exciting for a different reason which is as a cuban person uh, you know having the opportunity to write a cuban family was something that really appealed to me. The opportunity to work with living legend Norman Lear and learn mm-hmm. from him was also extremely appealing and we had not done a multi-camera comedy up until that point and I'm the kind of person that likes to, I want to try everything before my career is over. And sure. so we've been really fortunate to have experience writing single camera comedies, sort of action comedies like the tick multi-camera sitcoms, like one it with a tape night and a live audience, like one day at a time, but also animation like as family two or Quala man, which adult animation like Koala man or big mm-hmm. giant hybrid movies like like Pokemon and some of the other things that we're working on now, so it's 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 been really nice to have sort of the range of experience and and bring some of those lessons to across apply them to different things. So that mm-hmm. that's, but there's always like a beating heart, I think, in what I write. I, I really, I'm not. I probably will never write anything that is very very dark without a glimmer of hope in it because that's just not what i enjoy in my art and i understand Mm -hmm. like there is a place for that and certainly there are things that are downers that i think are amazing and good but the things that i actually respond to more than that are things that are downers but have a point and have the possibility of hope at the end of them and and that's always going to be more appealing to me. And so that's something that I kind of try to take into whatever projects that we're working on as Mm -hmm. a philosophical approach to whatever extent that, you know, Uncle Fester turning into an octopus is, is, (laughs) is philosophical.
0: (laughs) Well, but on that, on that topic though, I mean, when, when my, my children and I watched ultraviolet and black scorpion, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you're, you're getting like a superhero origin story, but then it takes a moment to, Physically like pan over what the characters are eating and showing, you know, what the culture of the family's like. And so when I see that in a TV show, I, I know it's unique. I, I, I don't see it in other places. And that's, that's why I love what you're doing, um, particularly here. I mean, I guess, did, did you have to fight for those moments or did everybody just kind of go along with those?
1: Um I think that there was a genuine desire to try to bring some of that verisimilitude to something like ultraviolet. And so I, don't, I wouldn't say that it was a fight. I would say that mm-hmm. sometimes you as a, it's hard when you're the only, and, and I am not the first person to express this and I certainly have not experienced the worst of it, but it is sometimes hard when you're the only diverse person in a room full of not diverse people mm-hmm. trying to be the, standard bearer and like somehow speak for this multitudinous group that is quite different and like actually not homogenous, but suddenly Mm -hmm. it, it it gets sort of compressed down into being like, well, you know, Latino people are this, or this Mm -hmm. is what a Latino family looks like. And it really, it's like, well, no, this is what a Mexican American family might look like in Southern Mm -hmm. California, which is radically different from a Chicano family in Chicago, which is radically different than, So other people who have had some kind of diaspora experience um, or even my own background, which is more on the Cuban, Puerto Rican side of things with my family sort of being evenly split between those islands. And so Mm -hmm. it's uh, it, it becomes challenging sometimes to say, well, no, you know, it's okay actually, if this Latino family eats whatever chilaquiles for breakfast, but it's also okay. that they don't live in like an hacienda that like is obviously like, you know, like something that you might see in a, in a Mexican soap opera.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep.
1: And how do you strike the balance of uh, what I believe is sort of modern diverse living in America, which is, it's not just one thing or the other. It's not all sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Like, it's not all adaptation to sort of the greater mass culture, but it's also not always like I'm wearing a, you know, a guayabera a hundred percent of the time and I'm, and I'm, you know, eating lechon asado every day for, you know, sometimes like Latino people like McDonald's too. That's, that's, that's fine. So (laughs) I, I think that that sometimes was, you know, and I think everyone had really good intentions, and I think that we we found a nice balance as much as possible on that show. I got to give a lot of credit to Leo and Eric, uh, who show ran the show on a day to day basis. They made a real commitment to hiring uh, people with diverse backgrounds and people who had a lived experience that that matched up. And Disney Channel did, I think, had a real desire to to show a different kind of community and a different kind of family. So it was very it was something that I cared a lot about to, to try to have some representation of that on yeah. kids TV, which was, which was, you know, it was a, uh, it was a very interesting
0: experience. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, that's, that's, that's the feeling I get when I watched it with my kids. And I, I really do think it's important. I mean, I know some people like everybody in the corporate room is going to say, Oh, diversity and inclusion is important to me. And I go, okay, well, how are you showing it? And, and this to me shows that you, you're committed to it. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're showing people's lives in ways that's usually not depicted. And so I thought that was a really cool thing Um, to to shift back to detective Pikachu for a moment. And I'll, the reason why I'm going to say this is because Madison, Wisconsin has one of the largest Pokemon go communities in the country. A lot of people don't know this. It's a really funny thing. So a lot of folks here uh, had the chance to ask some questions and we did filter them for content. So you're not, uh, hopefully going to have to, you know, answer who could win in what fight, Okay, but, <laughs> one of one of the questions that we got uh, was from user Jay West, who asked, "Where did the idea to blend real life and Pokemon come together, and and how did the idea of bringing them into a real world begin?"
1: Well, it, it didn't begin with me. It began with the Pokemon Company and Game Freak, and who are sort of the the. It's like a complex to explain, but basically, these mm-hmm. there are these two entities that are like sort of the same entity, but not exactly that that have the rights to. Pokemon. Uh, but essentially, let's say the Pokemon company is sort of the mm-hmm. main driver of that. They they had a real desire to, to see uh, Pokemon come to life, but I think that there was also a desire to try something a little bit different, mm-hmm. and maybe even a desire to to kind of let something stand on its own, rather than being the same story of Ash and his Pikachu and training and battling and so there was i i think so around that time the game detective pikachu came out in japan uh and it when i got involved in the project it wasn't even available in america i i was given a translation of the script of the game oh wow so that was about <laughs> the extent of what i had and so at first not having trainers not having battles not having you know Kanto region, you know, like all of those things felt like limiting in some level. It felt a little bit like writing a star Wars movie without the force and lightsabers. And yeah, but I think that as we started to explore what it could be, we realized that because we were actually freed from having to do those things, we could tell a story that was quite different than the previous iterations of pokemon and from that point we started to because of the nature of the detective sir we started to dial in on this idea of a neo noir mystery with pikachu and mm-hmm. and that got everyone very excited and you know and all of that sort of existed prior to our joining the project cuz we joined it pretty darn close to the beginning but not exactly at the beginning but mm-hmm. but one of the reasons that we I think got that job ultimately is because we were able to really have opinions on, you know, I grew up with Pokemon. I wouldn't say that I was the, like, I was 14 or so when it came out. So I wasn't, if I had been 10, I would have been yeah. like all in on it. But, <laughs> but I grew up with it in a real way, playing the games and smash brothers and things like that. So mm-hmm. we had opinions on which Pokemon should be in the movie, which Pokemon would lend themselves to a more realistic depiction which ones were so strange. Like, you wouldn't think that Mr. Mime would work ever. <laughs> but weirdly, in this context, he, he did. But yes. it wasn't because we were trying to make him cool. We Quite the opposite. We really leaned into the fact that he's, like, very annoying and no one likes him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I think, you know, in a funny way, made people like him more because it was, like, expressing something about this, this Pokemon that I think people had felt for a long time. And so by contextualizing it into having a real person having to deal with a Mr. Mime, suddenly it became really funny. And so I think that we always approached it from, uh, you know, a couple things like how do we tell a great noir story, but also what is the reality of a world in which you do have a Pokemon partner or that Pokemon really are instituted not into not just as pets or as companions, but also as a part of the infrastructure of the world, they're your construction workers, they're your traffic officers, they're your firefighters, they're your painters Mm -hmm. and bouncers and all of that stuff. So really trying to pin down the, the nitty gritty of that. Yeah. Was I think what enabled us to make rhyme city feel like a, like kind of a different, but also lived in place and the inspiration also for that was the cantina scene in, in, Star Wars, you know, New Hope, mm-hmm. which is the 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 range of possibilities of that world suddenly open up a yeah. lot oh, yeah. the second that he walks into that cantina. And we wanted it to feel similar to that yeah. moment of you sort of see him in his kind of more quiet provincial town. Um and then all of a sudden Tim walks into Rime City, and it's just everywhere. It's overwhelming, <laughs> and that—that that was the sense that we wanted. And I think that that's why it feels real because I do think that if, if Rime City existed, it would feel like that for someone who had never been there before. It's like, what's that? Oh my gosh, look at that! Look at that! Look at it, that! So that—that that was yeah, where that was sort of the genesis of it.
0: It's overwhelming when you see all the details, but it also is very logical to me. Like the idea that a Snorlax falling asleep in a crosswalk or something, and then. People going well. We can't wake that thing up. We just gotta build life around it. That that made sense to me as a fan of Pokemon and being an adult going into that movie. You know, so that was. I think that's where where the real the big selling point for me was is that this is an evolved version of Pokemon, right? Like this is an evolved uh, version of what I'm used to seeing from a kid to an adult. But children are still gonna love this too. Like there's a really really good delicate balance that you guys had there. And I think you, you knocked it out of the park for sure.
1: Thank you. We're really proud of that one. And I also think that a lot of people have discovered it over the course of the pandemic. And a lot of people have reached out and said, you know, I watched this with my kid. It was like really great. And mm-hmm. uh, that that's very rewarding to me because I, I really, it was a very unusual movie uh, that also had the misfortune of being released right at the same time as Avengers Endgame. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. it, it, you know when you run into a buzzsaw like that, I mean the movie still did really well and was a success, but mm-hmm. but I feel like maybe some people didn't get to see it at the time and then have subsequently seen it and, and been like, oh, this movie is actually really good.
0: Yeah. Or well, better I,
1: than I thought it was going to be. And so that that's yeah. that's been super rewarding for me.
0: I, I think one of the the things about it that really stands out was that when you watch the trailer you know you know how you've watched so many trailers like Terminator Genesis, for example, you watch that and you go, "I know exactly what's happening in this movie just from this the The detective Pikachu trailers gave you just enough to to get into it and still leave everything to to mystery you know and so that's why I loved that trailer. I think the marketing for it was really responsible because a lot of times we're just trying to use the easiest jokes that we could pull, and in this case it it was a very intriguing you know, entry into that. So um, one other user question we had for you, though, and then we'll get you on your way. Okay. <laughs> uh, so user Don Moser asked, were there any cut Pokemon that you really wanted to include? And did the Pokemon company request that you make any changes based on the directions you were going?
1: Um, there were a ton of cut Pokemon that I really wanted to include. Um, we had an incredible sequence with Garbodor. Uh, at at one point that I really was bummed that got caught. We had what I felt was an amazing sequence with Jigglypuff that was like a lot more involved. Jigglypuff sort of went down to some more of a cameo, but there was a bit more of a focused uh, Mm -hmm. sort of spotlight on Jigglypuff where they're chasing Mr. Mime. What was going to happen is they were chasing Mr. Mime and they run into a concert hall and Pikachu kind of looks around and he's like, Oh no. And then the curtain parts and it is the Jigglypuff concert. And all these people have come (laughs) to get a good night's sleep and Jigglypuff (laughs) starts singing. And so then they have to avoid falling asleep as they're in the middle of this chase sequence. I I, I really, you know, I understand uh, And there's any number of reasons, something like that gets cut, but it was really, it was funny. It was good. And I, and I, and I'm sorry that it, that it didn't live to see another day. Um, There were, there was a whole set piece in um, a Pokemon natural history museum with the fossils of Pokemon and fossils of some of the legendary Pokemon that survived right up until the end. And then right at the end, it it, it didn't end up making the movie, but that was an awesome location. Um, That was also, I think there was a big gall bat kind of set piece where they're dealing with, with that. And so, there were tons of iterations and tons of discussion about which Pokemon would make it into the movie. Um, As far as the Pokemon company, they were pretty good about um, allowing us to try all kinds of different things. I think that there were maybe a couple of parameters that they put on it. Like they, I don't think that they wanted to really see like a legendary in the flesh, if I recall correctly at that time, because it, it, it just becomes so, big at that point, And there's so many questions that are raised that I think there was a feeling that if they were going to do that, maybe that should be something that was saved for a different story, maybe, or maybe it just, you know, so like, there were things like that. Um, but as far as, you know, there were definitely some that we felt like it was important to try to represent all of the generations that existed at that time, so that everyone felt Scene and that oh there was a there was a a a, a, a puzzle basically with Klefki that I thought was really good oh, um, cool <laughs> so there were you know there was a lot of stuff that we thought was really clever and good that just you know when you write a movie like that things are constantly kind of falling out or there's some practical reason that you can't do it or you don't you know there's a number of reasons why things get cut but uh, we were very fortunate to basically select every Pokemon that ended up being in the movie which I think is is one of the things that I'm the proudest of is that we really spent a lot of time thinking about it talking about it working with Pokemon Company and making these sort of tough decisions because there are so many and they're so also great so it's, it's how do you winnow the field down to your core group and how do you who are the Pokemon that you say if I don't see Charmander I'm going to be disappointed if I don't see Bulbasaur I'm going to feel like I didn't really see a Pokemon movie and so we, we tried to also keep that in mind which is like who are the fans really wanted to see for yeah. a long time and so those were sort of our but, but also wedded to which Pokemon have innate sort of cinematic and comedic personas which is why Psyduck is my favorite Pokemon because <laughs> yeah. I think he's just so funny and so I was a big proponent for right from the day one of saying like I think Psyduck is our comedic kind of foil. He's hilarious. He's cute. It just works. You know, it just it's just going to work for the big screen. And and I I think that was borne out. So there was a lot of discussion, but everyone was really cool and and let us try a bunch of different stuff. And then ultimately, it's up to the director and you know sort of the the bigger production to say okay, like what is actually going to make it in the movie and what is cool but maybe not necessary but we had tons of stuff that didn't actually make the movie which uh you know i wish it had but that's just how it is sometimes
0: what you told me about just now i i kind of wish i could have seen fleshed out but i mean what we got was really good too and so i can't be i can't be truly disappointed i mean it it, it was a really good film and a really fun film so hats off to you for doing that Uh, metaphorically i if I take this off, I'll yank the headphones off, too. <laughs> but, hey, you know what, Dan? I really have been just so thankful to get the chance to sit down with you. It's it's I feel like it's been like a year and a half in the making. And um, I want to thank you doubly as well for the work that you do. I really do put a lot of importance on this because the work that you've done is very different from other shows that are out there. And so um, I, I really look forward to continuing to, to rep your work. I know I talked about trailers and stuff before. Don't worry. I'll keep, I'll keep sharing (laughs) your trailers. Thank Um, you. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, otherwise we'd like to give the floor to our guests at the end here. If there's anything that you'd like, uh, folks to know about and how to find you.
1: Um, you know, Qualman is coming out. Um, we're not a hundred percent sure, but it'll be coming out in the next, Probably, in you know, in the in the, the near future, uh, I'm talking like, you know, months, uh, whether that's November, December, January, we're not 100% yet, but we're February, you know, like, but, but within the next half a year, it will be coming out. And so I, I hope people will check that out on Hulu. Um, it's a terrific, funny show for definitely an adult comedy, but I think, <laughs> Uh, i 'm really proud of it i 'm really proud of the way that it that it 's turning out. We have an amazing group of people, and so that 's the main thing that 's happening. I have some other kind of movie type things that are going to be announced in the not too distant future which i 'm excited about although i can 't fully i think i 'm not supposed to talk about some of them right now but there 's one in particular that is a is a i think it 's going to be it 's a big one so i 'm i 'm excited to to be able to actually like talk about it and share with with the world what some of the things that we've been up to um and i'm pretty accessible at at, on twitter at cuban missile dh um you know i try to keep it positive (laughs) uh i try to keep it light and funny and if you're an aspiring writer occasionally i'll do kind of more big writing advice threads on how to navigate your different parts of your career different parts of the creative process and so it, it's uh join us won't you but <laughs> but yeah i mean it's that, that those are the kind of the main things going on right now
0: perfect well that's cool and i once again look forward to continuing to see you guys just knock it out of the park and to your continued success as well
1: hey i'm dan hernandez and until next time keep on dissecting